Hello and welcome to the Bradbury Chronicles, a podcast by The World Outside the Window. This podcast is a celebration of the life and work of Ray Bradbury. Each episode is going to take a look at one of his short stories and then explore its themes. It will be me interpreting the story and sharing with you my ideas about what what it's all about. I've always been really interested in the spoken word. I want to celebrate the flow and musicality of the prose. Normally, I'm going to be reading the whole short story in its entirety. So if that's your thing, you can stick me in your ears, which is a bit weird, and view this as a kind of audio book, really, and I'll try my best to uh, read that really well for you. I think reading out loud is when a story really comes to life. I read stories to my children and to my friends, uh, to my family, people in the street, people at the bus stop, anyone who will listen. And I think when we share stories, we create a community. We create a shared magic and energy and spirit. The power of the spoken word can inspire us to believe there is something greater than ourselves. Whether you put that down to magic, God, whatever. The analysis in this podcast is purely my interpretations with a little bit of reading around the edges. But it is my thoughts, not an academic discourse. It's me sharing my passion for storytelling and love of Bradbury's writing style. Two million. Well, paraphrase it, Ralph. Change it to don't see so much, Chris. Your mind is too big for your body. I've got a war on between a mind that wants things my body can't give it. Priory nodded quietly. I see what you mean about it's being a personal war. In that case, Christopher, I'm at war too. I knew you were, I said. Somehow, I think the other kids will grow out of it. But I don't think we will, Ralph. I think we'll keep waiting. We sat down in the middle of the sunlit upper deck of the house and started checking over some homework on our formula pads. Priory couldn't get his, neither could I. Pry put into words the very thing I didn't dare say out loud. Chris, the astronaut board selects. You can't apply for it. You wait. I know. You wait from the time you're old enough to turn cold in the stomach when you see a moon rocket, until all the years go by, and every month that passes you hope that one morning a blue astronaut helicopter will come down out of the sky, land on your lawn, and that a neat-looking engineer will ease out, walking up the rampway briskly, and touch the bell. You keep waiting for that helicopter until you're twenty-one, and then on the last day of your twentieth year, you drink and laugh a lot and say, what the heck, you didn't really care about it anyway. We both just sat there, deep in the middle of his words. I don't want that disappointment, Chris. I'm fifteen just like you. But if I reach my 21st year without an astronaut ringing the bell, where I live, 
at the Orvo station. I, I know, I said. I know. I've talked to men who've waited. All for nothing. And if it happens that way to us, Ralph, well, we'll get good and drunk together. And then get out. We'll go out and take jobs loading cargo on a Europe-bound freighter. Ralph stiffened, and his face went pale. Loading cargo? There was a soft, quick step on the ramp, and my mother was there. I smiled. Hi, lady. Hello. Hello, Ralph. Hello, Jean. She didn't look much older than 25, in spite of having birthed and raised me and worked at the government statistics house. She was light and graceful and smiled a lot, and I could see how father must have loved her very much when he was alive. One parent is better than none. Poor Priory now, raised in one of those orthopedical stations. Jean walked over and put her hand on Ralph's face. You look ill, she said. What's wrong? Ralph managed a fairly good smile. Nothing. At all. Jean didn't need prompting. She said, you can stay here tonight, Priory. We want you, don't we, Chris? Heck yes. I should get back to the station, said Ralph. Rather feebly, I observed, but since you asked and Chris here needs help on his semantics for tomorrow, I'll stick and help him. Very generous, I observed. First, though, I have a few errands. I'll take the rail and be back in an hour, people. When Ralph was gone, my mother looked at me intently, then brushed my hair back with a nice little move of her fingers. Something's happening, Chris. My heart stopped talking because it didn't want to talk any more for a while. It waited. I opened my mouth, but Jean went on. Something's up somewhere. I had two calls. I had two calls at work today. One from your teacher. One from I can't say. I don't want to say until things happen. My heart started talking again, slow and warm. Don't tell me then, Jean. Those calls. She just looked at me. She took my hand between her two soft, warm ones. You're so young, Chris. You're so awfully young. I didn't speak. Her eyes brightened. You never knew your father. I wish you had. You know what he was, Chris? I said. Yeah, he worked in a chemistry lab, deep underground most of the time. And my mother added strangely, he worked deep under the ground, Chris, and never saw the stars. My heart yelled in my chest, yelled loud and hard. Oh, mother, mother. It was the first time in years I had called her mother. When I woke the next morning, there was a lot of sunlight in the room, but the cushion where Priory slept when he stayed over was vacant. I listened. I didn't hear him splashing in the shower cube, and the dryer wasn't humming. He was gone. I found his note pinned on the sliding door. See you at Formula at noon. Your mother wanted me to do some work for her. She got a call this morning and said she needed me to help. So long, Priory. Priory, out running errands for Jean. Strange. A call in the early morning to Jean. I went back and sat down on the cushion. While I was sitting there, a bunch of the kids yelled down on the lawn court. Hey Chris, you're late. I stuck my head out of the window. Be right down. No, Chris. My mother's voice. It was quiet and it had something funny in it. I turned around. She was standing in the doorway behind me, her face pale drawn, full of some small pain. No, Chris, she said again, softly. Tell them to go on to Formula without you today. The kids were still making noise downstairs, I guess, but I didn't hear them. I just felt myself and my mother 
slim and pale and restrained in my room. Far off, the weather control vibrators started to hum and throb. I turned slowly and looked down at the kids. The three of them were looking up, lips parted casually, half smiling, semantic tabs in their knotty fingers. Hey, one of them said. Sydney it was. Sorry, Sid. Sorry, gang. Go on without me. I can't go to Formula today. See you later, huh? Oh, Chris. Sick. No, just, just go on without me, gang. I'll see you. I felt numb. I turned away from their upturned, questioning faces and glanced at the door. Mother wasn't there. She'd gone downstairs, quietly. I heard the kids moving off, not quite as boisterously, toward the monorail station. Instead of using the back elevator, I walked slowly downstairs. Jean, I said, where's Ralph? Jean pretended to be interested in combing her long, light hair with a vibro-toothed comb. I sent him off. I didn't want him here this morning. Why am I staying home from Formula, Jean? Chris, please don't ask. Before I could say anything else, there was a sound in the air. It cut through the very soundproofed wall of the house and hummed in my marrow, quick and high as an arrow of glittering music. I swallowed all the fear and uncertainty and doubt went away instantly. When I heard that note, I thought of Ralph Priory. Oh, Ralph, if you could be here now. I couldn't believe the truth of it. Hearing that note and hearing it with my whole body and soul, as well as with my ears. It came closer, that sound. I was afraid it would go away. But it didn't go away. It lowered its pitch and came down outside the house in great whirling petals of light and shadow. And I knew it was a helicopter, the colour of the sky. It stopped humming. And in the silence, my mother tensed forward, dropped the vibro comb and took in her breath. In that silence, too, I heard booted footsteps walking up the ramp below. Footsteps that I had waited for a long time. Footsteps I was afraid would never come. Somebody touched the bell and I knew who it was. And all I could do, and all I could think, was of Ralph. Why in the heck did you have to go away now, when all this is happening? Blast it, Ralph. Why did you, why did you go? The man looked as if he had been born in his uniform. It fitted like a second layer of salt-coloured skin, touched here and there with a line, a dot of blue, as simple and perfect a uniform as could be made, but with all the muscled power of the universe behind it. His name was Trent. He spoke firmly with a natural, round perfection, directly to the subject. I stood there, and my mother was on the far side of the room, looking like a bewildered little girl. I stood listening. Out of all the talking, I remember some of the snatches. Highest grades, high IQ, per perception A1, curiosity, triple A, enthusiasm necessary to the long eight-year educational grind. Yes, sir. Talks of your semantics and psychology teachers. Yes, sir. And don't forget, Mr. Christopher. Mr. Christopher. And don't forget, Mr. Christopher. Nobody is to know you've been selected by the astronaut board. No one. Your mother and your teacher know, naturally, but no other person must know. Is that perfectly understood? Yes, sir. Trent smiled quietly, standing there with his big hands at his sides. Darn right, darn right, I murmured. I will, I, I promise I will. I caught my voice. Jean, how, how will we tell Ralph? What about him? You're going away, that's all, Chris. Tell him that, very simply. Tell him no more. He'll understand. But Jean, you... 
She smiled softly. Yes, I'll be lonely, Chris, but I'll have my work, and I'll have Ralph. You mean... I'm taking him from the Orpho station. He'll live here when you're gone. That's what you wanted me to say, isn't it, Chris? I nodded, all paralysed and strange inside. That's exactly what I wanted you to say. He'll be a good song, Chris. Almost as good as you. He'll be fine. We told Ralph Priory how I was going away maybe to school in Europe for a year, and how Mother wanted him to come live as her son now until such a time as I came back. We said it quick and fast, as if it burned our tongues, and when we finished, Ralph came and shook my hand and kissed my mother on the cheek, and he said, I'll be proud. I'll be very proud. It was funny, but Ralph didn't ask any more about why I was going, or where, or how long I would be away. All he would say was, we had a lot of fun, didn't we? And let it go at that, as if he didn't dare say any more. It was Friday night, after a concert at the amphitheatre, in the centre of our public circle, and Priory and Jean and I came home, laughing, ready to go to bed. I hadn't packed anything. Priory noted this briefly, and let it go. All of my personal supplies for the next eight years would be supplied by someone else. No need for packing. My semantics teacher called on the audio, smiling, and saying a very brief, pleasant goodbye. Then we went to bed, and I kept thinking in the hour before I lolled off about how this was the last night with Jean and Ralph. The very last night. Only a kid of fifteen. Me. And then in the darkness, just before I went to sleep, Priory twisted softly on his cushion, turned his solemn face to me and whispered, Chris. A pause. Chris, you still awake? It was like a faint echo. Yes, I said. Thinking. A pause. Yes. He said, you're, you're not waiting anymore, are you, Chris? I knew what he meant. I couldn't answer. I said, I'm awfully tired, Ralph. He twisted back and settled down and said, that's what I thought. You're not waiting anymore. Gosh, but that's good, Chris. That's good. He reached out and punched me in the arm muscle lightly. Then we both went to sleep. It was Saturday morning. The kids were yelling outside, their voices filled with the seven o'clock fog. I heard old man Wickard's ventilator flip open and the zip of his paragon. Shut up, I heard him cry, but he didn't sound grouchy. It was a regular Saturday game with him, and I heard the kids giggle. Priory woke up and said, Shall I tell them, Chris? You're not going with them today. Tell them nothing of the sort, Jean moved from the door. She went out the window, her hair all light against a ribbon of fog. Hi, gang. Ralph and Chris will be right down. Hold gravity. Jean, I cried. She came over to both of us. You're going to spend your Saturday the way you always spend it, with the gang. I planned on sticking with you, Jean. What sort of holiday would that be now? She ran us through our breakfast, kissed us on our cheeks, and forced us out the door into the gang's arms. Let's not go out to the rocket port today, guys. Ah, oh, Chris, why not? Their faces did a lot of changes. This was the first time in history I hadn't wanted to go. You're kidding, Chris. Sure he is. No, he's not. He means it, said Priory. And I don't want to go either. We go every Saturday. It gets tiresome. We can go next week instead. Aw. They didn't like it, but they didn't go off by themselves. It was no fun, they said, without us. What the heck? We'll go next week. Sure we will. What do you want to do, Chris? I told them. We spent the morning playing kick the can 
and some games we'd given up a long time ago, and we hiked out along some old rusty and abandoned railroad tracks and walked in a small woods outside town and photographed some birds and went swimming raw, and all the time I kept thinking, this is the last day. We did everything we had ever done before on Saturday, all the silly crazy things, and nobody knew I was going away except Ralph, and five o'clock kept getting nearer and nearer at four. I said goodbye to the kids. Leaving so soon, Chris? What about tonight? Call for me at eight, I said. We'll go see the new Sally Gilbert's picture. Swell. Cut gravity. And Ralph and I went home. Mother wasn't there, but she had left part of herself, her smile and her voice and her words in a spool of audio film on my bed. I inserted it in the viewer and threw the picture on the wall. Soft yellow hair, her white face and her quiet words. I hate goodbyes, Chris. I've gone to the laboratory to do some extra work. Good luck. All my love. When I see you again, you'll be a man. That was all. Priorated outside while I saw it over four times. I hate goodbyes, Chris. I've gone. Work. Luck. All my love. I had made a film spool myself the night before. I spotted it in the viewer and left it there. It only said goodbye. Priory walked halfway with me. I wouldn't let him get on the Rocketport monorail with me. I just shook his hand tight and said, It was fun today, Ralph. Yeah. Well, see you next Saturday, huh, Chris? I wish I could say yes. Say yes anyway. Next Saturday, the woods, the gang, the rockets, an old man wicked and his trusty paragon. We laughed. Sure. Next Saturday, early. Take, take care of our mother, will you, Priory? That's a silly question, you nut, he said. It is, isn't it? He swallowed. Chris? Yeah, I'll be waiting. Just like you waited. I don't have to wait anymore. I'll wait. Maybe it won't be long, Priory. I hope not. I jabbed him once in the arm. He jabbed back. The monorail door sealed. The car hurled itself away, and Priory was left behind. I stepped out at the port. It was a 500-yard walk down to the administration building. It took me ten years to walk it. Next time I see you, you'll be a man. Don't tell anybody. I'll wait, Chris. It was all choked in my heart and it wouldn't go away, and it swam around in my eyes. I thought about my dreams, the moon rocket. It won't be part of me, part of my dream any longer. I'll be part of it. I felt small there, walking, walking, walking. The afternoon rocket to London was just taking off as I went down the ramp to the office. It shivered the ground and it shivered and thrilled my heart. I was beginning to grow up awfully fast. I stood watching the rocket until someone snapped their heels, cracked me a salute. I was numb. CM Christopher? Yes, sir, reporting. This way, Christopher, through that gate. Through that gate and beyond the fence. This fence where we had pressed our faces and felt the wind turn warm and held to the fence and forgot who we were or where we came from, but dreamed of who we might be and where we might go. This fence where had stood the boys who liked being boys, who lived in a town and liked the town and fairly liked school and liked football and liked their fathers and mothers. The boys who came sometime, every hour of every day of every week, fought on fire and stars and the fence beyond which they waited, the boys who liked the rockets more. Mother, Ralph, I'll see you. I'll be back. 
mother, Ralph, and walking, I went beyond. R is for Rocket is actually a story that was first published under the title King of the Grey Spaces, and R is for Rocket appeared in the R is for Rocket short story collection in 1962. So what is R is for Rocket all about? I guess it's about the space race, and it definitely taps into that familiar Bradbury theme of childhood and a real nostalgia for what childhood was like, playing in the woods, playing kick the can. And it seems to be set in maybe this is depicting humanity's expansion into space. The program that Chris, the main character, joins seems to be sending people off to the moon uh, to do some kind of work there and it's top secret. It's very, very militaristic. There's also a question of children soldiers uh, child soldiers here isn't there the chris is just 15 and he is recruited by this um mysterious military space outfit and and he can't tell his family and i think the process the training process is something like eight years so he, he goes away as a 15 year old and will come back uh, as a man Another element that makes the story so nostalgic is this dreaming of space, dreaming of the stars. That reminds me, as most things do, of course, of Star Trek and the idea of people like Captain Kirk and Jean-Luc Picard and Catherine Janeway growing up on Earth and then looking to the stars and dreaming of adventure. That gives it a very nostalgic feel. And as a sort of continuation of my discussion with Glenn McDormand on the last episode, it feels like Bradbury doesn't really sugarcoat childhood. These are independent children, seemingly, um, that have, you know, are going through life and experiencing life in all its harshness, and they're being exposed to this potential of being sent off into space. And the mum feels like a strangely passive character she is going to adopt ralph as her adopted son although ralph also dreams to dreams of going to space so there's a very heartbreaking element of this parental figure having to send their child off to war it feels like that really echoing the experiences of mothers and fathers through you know, the First and Second World War, which would have been very recent to when the story was published. And then finally, you, obviously, this story is dealing with the fascination of space. And as I mentioned, the space race at the beginning of this segment, this was very, a very real theme and idea in uh, American society, uh, I guess, Western civilization, this, this, uh, this idea of landing on the moon was very much still, it was very active in the American imagination. It, the story was written in 1962, and the first men landed on the moon in 1969. So it was this impossible, uh, extraordinary idea that they could land, that men could land on the moon, and it's 
inspired this kind of science fiction and what that would mean and men going out into space, men and women going out into space and discovering strange new worlds. And But it was a tangible dream. And within a few years, the astonishing, seemingly miraculous had happened and men set foot on the moon. So it's really interesting to view the story in the context of prior to the moon landings. So I hope you enjoyed that story. I certainly did. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bradbury Chronicles, a podcast by the world outside the window. You can find out more about me and read some of my own work at www.theworldoutsidethewindow.com. You can follow me on Instagram at the world outside the window for poetry, photography and the occasional musical interlude. Or you can email me at wotwhq at gmail. You can find this podcast at all the usual places. And if you fancy leaving me a review, they're always very welcome, uh, as long as they are generally positive. Take care.